You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Keep in mind, over the, the last handful of chapters, we've seen that, that David has an enemy, right? King Saul. King Saul is hunting David down. Uh, he, he wants David dead. So as a result, David has been on the run. He's been fleeing. He's been fleeing from one place to another, from one city to another. He's had to hide out in caves, hide in the mountains, hide in the forest, all because he has an enemy. Now, that does remind me of what Jesus said in, in Luke 6, 27, when Jesus said, love your enemies, Love your enemies. But let's face it, that's easier said than done. Am I right? In fact, it reminds me of Mark Twain when he said, most people are bothered by the passages of scriptures that they don't understand, but the passages that bother me are the ones I do understand. And so it's with that in mind that I've titled today's message, Love Your Enemies and Other Things We Wish the Bible Didn't Say. Um, and so, I mean, let me ask you, how, how many of you have been hurt by someone? How many of you have an enemy? I mean, how many of you wish that the Bible said, stick it to your enemies? Or you wish the Bible said, you know, give the finger to those who curse you, or, or to him who slaps you on the cheek, give him the right hook. Well, again, in this passage, David has an enemy, and yet this morning in chapter 24, David finds himself in this, in this awkward position where he's having to love his enemy. So now as we pick up the first four verses, we see that forgiveness can be awkward. Forgiveness can be awkward. Verse, verse 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And David took three, I'm sorry, Saul took 3,000 uh, chosen men out of all of Israel went, and went to seek David and his, and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here's the day which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So now we can picture the scene. You know, uh, uh, David's, uh, David's on the run. Saul's in pursuit. And as he's in hot pursuit, all of a sudden nature calls and he has to answer the call. And that's why verse 3 said he went into the cave to relieve himself. Now, if you still don't know what it's talking about, the living Bible clears it up by saying Saul went into the cave to go to the bathroom. Okay, how clear can it get? Now, listen, the, the former youth pastor in me has a really hard time right now not making poop jokes. I'm just telling you. But I've grown, I've matured, and I now realize that, that poop jokes may not be the best, but they are a strong number two. Uh, just saying. <laughs> but listen, this, this is how we know, by the way, that the Bible is a, is a real book about real people. Because it, it tells us real details like this, that, that somebody in the Bible actually had to stop what they're doing and take care of business. They, they had to go to the cave and go to the bathroom. You know, it's not like TV shows, like, like that show 24. Remember the, remember the show 24 with Kiefer Sutherland? You know, his character, Jack Bauer? He has 24 hours to save the world. And never once in 24 hours do we see him go to the bathroom. And so the, the Bible's a real book about real people who had real needs and had, did real things, like go to the restroom. And by the way, this isn't the first time the Bible includes a detail like this. In fact, back in Judges chapter 3, we meet a man named Ehud. Now, Ehud uh, is a southpaw, meaning he's left-handed, which turned out to be to his advantage in this case. So we read in Judges chapter 3, and I'll just paraphrase, uh, Ehud goes and visits uh, this, this overweight king by the name of Eglon. 
Now, because, by the way, Ehud was left-handed, that meant that he carried his knife or his dagger on his right thigh instead of his left thigh like most people did. So he went to visit the king. What that means is, is, is he passed the security search. They patted him down for, for weapons, but they only checked the normal side, and they completely missed that he, he's left-handed. And so he, he, he sneaks through, he gets in, and then he tells the king that he's got a secret message for him. And so now the king's intrigued. He sends everybody out of the room, including his security detail. So the security staff goes out of the room. Ehud gets up really close, like he's about to whisper a, a, a secret in the king's ear, only to, 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 to thrust his 18-inch dagger into the king's stomach. And the Bible tells us that, that Eglon was, was, was so overweight that the dagger literally disappeared in the rolls of fat. And, and, and Ehud's like, I didn't need it anyway. I'm just going to leave it there. So he just sneaks out the window, kind of runs away. And, and meanwhile, the security staff on the other side are wondering, what's taking the king so long? Like, you know what? Maybe he's going to the bathroom. And they figure, hey, the bigger they are, the longer it takes. So they keep waiting and they keep waiting. And, 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 and they discover he's not going to the bathroom. He was assassinated and, and, and the killer got away. So now in the same way, here in this passage, we see that, that Saul, he's pursuing David, has to stop you know, for, for a pit stop, goes into the cave, relieves himself, but little does he know he's got company. He's not alone in the cave because in that cave are David and his men. Now for just a moment, I want you to put yourself in David's yarmulke, so to say. I mean, here's David, right? I mean, his whole life has been turned upside down by Saul. I mean, he's, he, his whole life has been ruined. He's on the run. He's, 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 he's hiding out in caves. He's, he's, he's hiding for his life. And now all of a sudden, the man who basically ruined his life happens to come into the same cave that he's hiding in so that he can go to the bathroom. Now, let me ask you, is there someone in your life that, that, that's hurt you? Someone that's wronged you, someone that's done you dirty. Maybe they've slandered you. Maybe they've ruined your reputation. Maybe they've ruined your life. Have anybody like that in your life? Yeah, me neither. But, but here's, you know, here's, here's David. This man has ruined his life, and, and, and now there's this moment, this awkward moment. You ever have an awkward moment like this? Someone's ruined your life, and then unexpectedly you bump into them somewhere, like maybe Walmart. You know, maybe, maybe you bump into him at Starbucks or Red Robin. And, you know, and you're t you're, you bump into him and, and you got to say something. You know, but now you have this, like, awkward moment. you got to say something. So you're like, hey, guy, you know, how, how's it been? Still stabbing people in the back? You know, so you, I mean, what do you say? It's just, it's just awkward, right? So, you know, I mean, here you are. Maybe you walk into Chipotle and you got to go to the bathroom while you're there. So you, so you go into the bathroom, you open up the stall, and there's the guy that did you dirty in your stall. That's the kind of moment that David's having right now. And all of a sudden, David's men look at him and, and they're like, David, this is your chance to, to get some payback. This is your chance to get some revenge. And they're like, hey, besides, God has given them to you. God's behind this. This is God's will. That's what they say back in verse 4. For Samuel chapter 24, verse 4, he says, it says, Here's the day which the Lord has said, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. Now, by the way, we should probably pause and ask ourselves, when did the Lord say that? When did the Lord say, I will give your enemy into your hand? Answer, never. You look up every verse, every chapter in the book of 1 Samuel so far, God never said those words. That was never said. Now, what we do have is, is, is it earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God did make known that one day David would replace Saul as the next king of Israel. 
One day, God would take Saul down and lift David up. And so evidently, David's men are kind of reading into God's promise. They're kind of reading their own interpretation into God's promise. They're like, David, listen, maybe this is what God meant. You know, maybe, maybe this is how God's going to keep his promise. I mean, you know, God's delivered him into your hand. I mean, all you got to do right now is just assassinate him, kill him, and the throne's yours. You know, as we all have people like this in our lives. You know, we have people who will come up and they'll say, hey, listen, sometimes you just got to help God out. I mean, you know, I mean, listen, you can't expect God to do his part if you're not willing to do your part. Sometimes you've got to help God out. So they're giving David this kind of advice. Now, by the way, we should probably not forget that the men who were giving David this advice had their own agenda. We know they had their own agenda because when we first met David's men back in chapter 22, and of course, there were only 400 of them at that time, but when we first met David's men, they were described as being 400 men who were in distress, in debt, and bitter. 400 men who, 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 who were tired of being oppressed by the heavy, tyrannical hand of King Saul, and they wanted King Saul dead. That was their agenda. That's what they wanted. And now they're giving David their advice, giving their opinion. And really, when they give their opinion, really, they weren't revealing the desire of God's heart as much as they are revealing the desire of their own heart. And by the way, this reminds us that whenever someone claims to be speaking for God, we should always test what they're saying. Because they may not be revealing the heart of God, they may be revealing their own heart. This is why 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything, hold on to the good. Because when it comes from the mouth of a man, it also comes from the heart of a man, and it may not have been the word of God. And so David's hiding in the cave. His, 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 his tormentor, his enemy, comes into the same cave to go to the bathroom. This is what we call awkward. And now as we pick it up in verse 5, verses 5 through 15, we see that forgiveness is rooted in standing on the promise of God. Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Let's pause. So again, David's hiding out. Saul comes in, and now David's men are like, David, you've, you've caught him literally with his pants down. This is your moment. You can get some revenge. And so David goes in, and he, and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, but then it says that his heart struck him because he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, the word struck, when it says his heart struck him, it's the Hebrew word nakah. It could be translated to strike or to wound or to pierce. But the New American Standard Bible renders it this way. It says, David's conscience bothered him. Let me ask you, you ever have one of those moments where the Holy Spirit strikes your conscience, convicts your conscience? You know, maybe, maybe it's in the middle of an argument that you're having, you know, and, 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 and things get intense, things get out of control, and, and they say one thing, and then you step it up another level, and you say something else, and then they step it up another level, and they say something even worse, and then you step it up and say something even more insulting, and it goes back and forth and forth and back, and then a little bit later, you hear this little voice inside that kind of convicts you. It even kind of strikes you from the inside, you know, even to the point that you start to feel like, like maybe you should go and humble yourself and make things right with this person and maybe even apologize. 
That's the kind of moment that David's having. As it says that his heart struck him. Why? Because he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, of course, we read that and we might wonder, how did he cut off the corner of Saul's robe without Saul even noticing? I mean, don't you think that, that he would have felt like somebody tugging and somebody kind of, you know, yanking on it and kind of cutting it? And, you know, how, how would he do that without him noticing? Well, the obvious answer was because before the king uh, sat on his porcelain throne, he first removed his royal robes. So his royal robe is, is laying on the ground. So because it's on the ground, David takes it, kind of cuts off the corner of it, and, and, and then sneaks away. Now, why did he cut off the hem, by the way? The hem of his robe. Well, because you see, in ancient times, the, 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 your royal robe was, was kind of the equivalent of a general's uniform, and the hem on that royal robe was the equivalent of the stripes on a general's uniform. And so what this is telling us is, is that basically David was planting, I'm sorry, planning a coup. He, he, he was basically planning that, that you know, he was going to essentially you know, get, get some much-deserved revenge, kill the guy that's been tormenting him, the guy that's ruined his life, and then once Saul is dead, he would come out of that cave holding the hem of the royal robe as a way to announce that he's now the new king. So he's planning, the, he's planning this coup. He's planning this assassination. He's cut off a corner of the robe only to have the Holy Spirit convict him in that moment, and now he's got a change of heart. And then in verse 7, he continues. And it says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, <coughs> pardon me, uh, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and, and, and some even told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, uh, the, the, see the corner of the robe in, in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Let's pause here again. So we see the scene. You know, you know, Saul comes out after doing his business, and after finishing up his business in the cave, all of a sudden David comes out afterwards and, 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 and announces himself and shows him the corner of the hem, the corner of the robe that he just cut off. And he announces himself in, in verse 11 by saying, See my father, the, the, the corner of, of your robe that I cut off? That's interesting. Notice, he doesn't say, your majesty. He doesn't say, you know, uh, see my lord the king. He doesn't say, your honor. He says, see my father. We need to keep in mind as we read this story that the man that had ruined David's life, the man that had turned his life upside down, was not only the king of Israel, but he was also David's father-in-law. He married into the family. Anybody have any estranged relationships with your in-laws? So did David. By the way, you know what they say the difference is between in-laws and outlaws, right? The difference between in-laws and outlaws is that outlaws are wanted. Anyway, uh, <laughs> verse, <laughs> verse 12 continues, and David says, May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand will not be against you. 
After whom uh, has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? pursue? Uh, After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So now we notice that that, that two different times, once in verse 12 and another time in, in verse 15, two different times, David says, may the Lord be judge. May the Lord be judged. This tells us that David understood that God was the judge. In fact, it reminds us of, of Psalm 75, verse 7, where it says, God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. You see, I think this was the promise that David was standing on. He was standing on the promise of God. God had promised that he would put down Saul and raise up David. And I think David trusted God's promise. He trusted that God would take down Saul and one day raise up David. And so what does this mean? This means that that he trusted that God would do it. In other words, he realized, he believed that he didn't have to do it himself. He did not have to take matters into his own hands to make it happen. He didn't have to assassinate the king. He didn't have to take down Saul. God would take down Saul and raise up David. And so this means that he was willing to wait for the promise of God. He was willing to wait for the timing of God. Why? Because evidently he understood that it's often the timing of God that brings about the promise of God. It's the timing of God that brings about the promise of God. And so how was he able to leave his enemy in God's hands? Because he was standing on the promise of God. But now as we pick it up in verse 16 through 21, we learn that that sometimes forgiveness is only one-sided. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to, to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And, and, and he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for, I have repa- for, for you have repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And, and, and you have declared this day how, how you've dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put you, I'm sorry, put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? So may the Lord reward you with with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be the king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house." So now Saul realizes just how fortunate he was, how close to death he actually was. And he, and he turns and he says, you know, David, you're a bigger man than I am. So then he says in, in, in verse 21, he says, therefore swear to me by the Lord. Now, by the way, that word swear, when he says swear to me, therefore by the Lord, it's the Hebrew word Shaba. It's a word that can be translated oath or contract or covenant. In fact, it's the same word that was used when David and Jonathan made a lifelong covenant with each other to stand by each other's side. And so basically, Saul's asking David to make the same kind of lifelong covenant with him, a covenant to to stand by his side, a covenant to protect him, a covenant to promise to never do him harm. But at the same time, this this seems to be very one-sided. Because at the same time, there's, there's no promise on Saul's part that he'll do the same favor for David. 
There's no promise from Saul that he'll protect David, that he won't ever harm David. In fact, as we read the rest of the story throughout the rest of the book, we see over and over and over again that although David forgave Saul, nevertheless, Saul continued to hate David, reminding us that oftentimes forgiveness can be one-sided. You know, we're reminded in, in Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that it was rendered that way. Aren't you glad that it says, if possible? Because quite frankly, sometimes it just isn't possible. I mean, let's face it. There are some people in this world where, where it seems like, 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 like no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do to try to, to try to restore things and make things right, it's like they just don't like you. They don't like you, they don't want to like you, and they're never going to like you. They're angry, they're, they're, they're cantankerous, they're bitter, and they just don't want anything to do with you. You know, maybe you've got some in-laws like that. I mean, David did, that was his father-in-law. You know, or maybe, maybe you work with somebody like that, or, or, you know, maybe you have somebody in your neighborhood like that. Maybe you've got a few Karens in your life. By the way, you know what you call a group of Karens? The HOA. And so, so maybe that's your relationship with the HOA. I mean, you try and you're doing everything you can, but they just don't like you. They're never going to like you. But you, you have these people, whoever they are in your life, and, and, you, and you try to have peace with them, and you try to have peace with them, but, but they're just never going to like you. That was David's relationship with Saul. So now as we pick up this last verse, we, we, we're, we're going we're gonna to see some more things we wished the Bible didn't say. Verse 22 and David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, you know, you would have thought that this story would have ended differently. I mean, you know, you would have thought that it would have said that they kissed and made up, that they hugged it out, that, that you know, that, 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 you know David forgave Saul, and as a result, Saul returns home. He, he returns back to the palace. I'm sorry, David returns back to the palace with Saul, and he gets his job back, and his family back, and his wife back, and, and everything's right again. But that's not what it says. No, what it says is, is that they each go their own separate ways. Saul went home, and David and his men went back to the stronghold. In other words, back to their hideout. In other words, whatever happened that day outside that cave, it was not the restoration of a relationship. You see, listen, the truth is, is that there are times where even though you have forgiven someone, there are still times when you cannot restore the relationship. Let me say that again. There are times where, where even though you have forgiven someone, you still cannot restore the relationship. It's impossible. I mean, listen, in 30-something in, in years of ministry, I, I've, I've counseled many, many people who, who are victims of abuse. Maybe it's victims of, of child abuse or, or victims of domestic violence. But I've talked to many people who have seen the same pattern, the same cycle over and over and over again. The cycle where, where their abuser all of a sudden feels bad, and it's usually because they got caught, but they feel bad and, 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 and they say that they're sorry. They promise they'll never do it again. They, they promise they'll be better. They, they, they promise that it'll be different this time. So they take them back. They forgive them, only to see that same crazy cycle start all over again, only to see that nothing has actually changed. And you see, the relationship between David and Saul is a relationship that, that typifies a, a, an abusive relationship. We've seen it again and again. Saul, dri driven by fear, driven by paranoia, driven by anger, loses control again and again, and therefore throws spear after spear at David. 
And then we see that he feels bad about it. He, he vows that he'll never do it again, only to see a chapter or two later that those same spears continue to fly to the point that David has to flee. He's, he's on the run. And so, yeah, on the one hand, David forgave Saul. David vowed that he would, he would never harm him. David vowed he, he would never seek revenge. But on the other hand, he never actually reconciled the relationship. Why? Well, listen, just because David forgave Saul doesn't mean that Saul was a changed man. In fact, quite frankly, as you read the rest of the story, he was anything but a changed man. Now, it reminds me of something else the Bible says we wish it didn't. Jesus, in, in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, he says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Talk about something we don't want to hear. Can you imagine forgiving the same person seven times in a single day? And yet what I want you to notice is that there's a prerequisite for forgiveness. Notice the prerequisite is repentance. Notice it doesn't say if he sins against you seven times, forgive him. It says if he repents seven times, forgive him. So therefore, the, the, the prerequisite, the requirement for forgiveness is repentance. That word repent, metanoio, is, is the Greek term. It, it means a, a change of action. It means a change of direction. It means a 180. In other words, it's not saying, hey, if they change their tune. No, you know what it's saying? You know what? If they change their actions, if they change their behavior, if they stop sinning against you, if, if, they, if they actually own responsibility for their actions and then change what they're doing. That's repentance. So in other words, it's not just being sorry. It's actually being sorry enough to stop. Sorry enough to, to do something about it and actually change what you're doing. That's repentance. And so sure, David forgave Saul. But he also knew that, 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 that Saul was still the same old Saul. Nothing really changed. See, David knew that, 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 that if he went back with Saul, it, it would just be a matter of weeks, maybe a matter of months, maybe just a matter of days until that same dysfunctional cycle started all over again. Just a matter of days before those same spears would start to fly once again. Now, in this passage this morning, I, I see two things that David says that remind me of other things we wish the Bible didn't say. Now, the two things that David said are back in verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. David says, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. So he says, may the Lord judge, and may the Lord avenge. Now, number one, he says, may the Lord judge. David understood that, that, that God would be Saul's judge not David. Saul was in God's hands, not David's hands. Reminding us of, of the words in James chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? So ultimately, this reminds us that, that there is a God in heaven, that there is one who sits on the throne, there is one who sits on the judgment seat, and you're not him. <laughs> I'm not him. David wasn't him. There is a judge, but God is that judge. So he says, may the Lord judge, but then this also reminds us of something else we, 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 we don't like to hear, and, and that is, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> <coughs> Allergies are kicking in. 
It reminds us of, of Jesus' words, and <coughs> there they are again. <clears throat> Jesus' words. Okay, we're going to fight this. It reminds us of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38, where, where Jesus said, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and it will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so if you give out a good measure, then you'll receive a good measure in return. But if you give out a harsh measure, you'll receive a harsh measure in return. This is why Jesus said back in Matthew 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You receive the measure that you give out. Now, by the way, when we talk about justice versus mercy, we should probably have a definition. Justice is, is you get what you deserve, you get what you deserve, whereas mercy, you get what you do not deserve. You get what you do not deserve. It's like the guy who went to a famous artist to get his portrait done, and, and, and a year later, the portrait is done. He goes to pick it up from, the, from, the, from his studio, and the guy unveils it, and, and all of a sudden, the guy is just shocked. He's, he's outraged. He's like, you know what? This is atrocious. This painting does not do me justice. And the artist looked at him and said, sir, with, 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 with all due respect, he says, with a face like that, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> I like the way Chuck Smith put it in his commentary. Chuck Smith said, whenever I pray, I never ask God for justice unless I'm praying for someone else. He says, but when I pray for myself, I always pray for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, be merciful to me. Now give justice to the guy who wronged me, but Lord, give me mercy. I would rather, Chuck says, sit on the mercy seat than on the judgment seat because I know the measure that I give out will be measured back to me. There is a judge but we're not that judge. And so David says, may the Lord judge. But then number two, he says, and may the Lord avenge. Reminding us that, that vengeance is his, not ours. Reminds us of Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where, where it says, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Now in that verse, in, 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 in Romans 12, 19, notice how many times are you allowed to take revenge? Answer, never. Never take revenge. Uh, notice, it, it doesn't say that, you know, go ahead, you know, get even, take revenge the first time, and then after the first time, leave them in God's hands. It doesn't say, hey, you know, it's okay to blast their reputation on social media, on Reddit, and, and you know, it's, it's okay to cancel them, you know. No, it says, never take revenge revenge. And so ultimately this morning, David's example reminds us that because God alone is the judge, we are able to love our enemies. Because God alone is the judge, we're able to forgive those who sinned against us. Because God alone is the judge, we're able to do good to those who hurt us because we are not their judge, he is. Amen? So Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we know that, that every one of us in this room, we've had someone, someone that's hurt us, someone that's crossed us, someone that we're afraid to bump into at Walmart. Lord, we, we, we've all got that person. But Lord, they're not ours to deal with, they're yours. Help us to know our place. Help us to remember that, that our place is at the foot of your throne, bowing down before you, worshiping, pouring out our hearts of gratitude to you. But our place is not actually on the throne. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're the judge. 
we are not. Lord, help us to surrender ourselves and to surrender them into your hands. So we stand on the promise. We can give them into your hands because we stand on the promise of God. And we believe you for it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.